And we are starting a new series on spiritual warfare at Eastland Life Church. We are kicking it off this morning, and then Pastor Brian's going to be picking up, I imagine, this upcoming weekend. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. But this morning, I want to sort of give a precursor or sort of a warm-up leading into spiritual warfare, because spiritual warfare is something that we believe is very relevant biblically, In the Bible, it's spoken of very often, Old Testament, New Testament, and it's something that's very relevant to us in the world today. Uh, There is a lot of spiritual warfare happening, and if you don't believe me, you can just simply look around our communities and find the hurting people. You can find the struggling churches. A a a statistic came out just a few weeks ago from the Barna Research Group that said, as a result of what happened in 2020, one in five churches in America now is now facing permanent closure due to financial difficulties from the previous year. So you can see that the enemy has taken a big swing at the church in our culture. Would you agree? The enemy has taken a swing. And it would seem that the enemy, Satan, has landed his punch. The church in America today is struggling. It's struggling for attendance, it's struggling for support, it's struggling for identity, it's struggling for sound footing, and we believe that as the elders at Eastland Life Church, it is our job and it's our duty to go to the Word of God and to explain and to teach what the Bible teaches about battling in this spiritual war that we are in. I want to show you what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6. It says that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. Church, people are not our problem. Our politicians may be a problem, but they're not the problem. Your boss may be a problem, but your boss isn't the problem. Your spouse, your kids, they may be a problem, but they're not the problem. The problem is not flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against authorities and against the powers in this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Spiritual warfare is literally defined in Scripture as the battle that's taking place in the heavenly places, in the places that we can't see behind the scenes in the spiritual world while we battle things in the physical world. And Satan would love for us to believe that people are the problem because Satan's goal for us is to isolate ourselves from people. I believe that we've seen the tools that he has used. We've had social media create sort of a false connection. We think it connects us, but what it truly does is it isolates us behind a screen with no true connection. We've seen the media work to alienate and divide and to keep us from connecting with people. We have seen the system at large. We have seen the culture within the last year tell us that it's dangerous to be with other people. And you should isolate for your own safety and for their safety. We are working against a system that is pitting us against one another. And the system is being controlled by Satan. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. We preach spiritual warfare because we need to be equipped to fight this battle. We preach spiritual warfare because an unequipped military is a dangerous thing for a nation. Imagine if you were to be drafted or enlisted into the military. You would not simply sign your name to the paper, show up for day one, and they hand you a weapon, and they hand you your armor, and they slap you on the rear end and say, get out there and get them, tiger. That is not how the military works. They would spend months and months and months teaching you changing the way you think, molding you, shaping you, building you up, 
tearing down the things that are not useful and building up the things that are more useful so that you can be an effective soldier in combat. In the spiritual world, I believe that today in our country, we need churches who will equip God's people to eliminate the things that are weighing them down, to help them deal with the incorrect ways of thinking and living, to help them deal with the problems that are keeping them from being their best spiritual selves in Jesus Christ. And we need to be equipping and building up soldiers that can go out into the battle world of this community and address what's happening and win battles. We need to be equipped to win this war, which is why we preach spiritual warfare. There are enemies right now positioned against us. Did you all know that? Imagine this morning if somebody got up here and said, listen, church, we, we hate to tell you this, but um, we've got an angry mob outside the church. They're not happy that we're here. They don't think we should be meeting. And as soon as we walk out those doors, they're ready for a fight. If we did that, chances are you would be finding Brian Comer, Bernie, one of these big tough guys, and saying, hey, I'm walking out behind you. We would want somebody leading us into battle. We would be looking for a way through. We would want to prepare and ready ourselves. But church, today in America, so many churches have become a place of consumption where we walk in, we sit down, we consume, we enjoy, we throw out the things we don't like, and we go back out into the world and we're no different. And that is not how we win this battle. We will not reclaim our culture and we will not impact our culture unless we are ready to engage with the culture and address the failings of this culture and not only tell them where they're wrong. Anybody can tell them where they're wrong. We need to be able to point to what's right and to who's right. That's how we win this spiritual war. But we can't do that if we don't know who our enemies are and how to address them and how to fight back against them. We have three enemies that I want to address today. We have three enemies that I want to address today. The first two I won't spend a ton of time on. Number three is where we're going to settle in today. Number one, our primary enemy is Satan. Now in the politically correct, don't try to sound like a spiritual lunatic culture we live in today, we don't usually use the word Satan. You hear him referred to as the enemy. It's like Voldemort. You can't say his name. He's Satan. He's the devil. He is positioned against us. He has positioned himself against God. And because God has positioned himself alongside of us by sending Jesus into the world to be the firstborn of many brothers is what the Bible calls him. Because Jesus has positioned himself alongside of us, we are now positioned against Satan. I don't believe we are Satan's primary enemy. I believe that that's God. But God has already won the war. God has already crushed the head of the devil when Jesus gave his life on the cross for his people. And now Satan's plan has already been thwarted. So at this point, the best Satan can do is try to tear us down along the way. If he can tear down the church along the way, that'll be the best he can do. And he is positioned against us today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says it this way. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is wandering around right now on earth. He's not all places at once, but he is right now wandering around the earth spiritually. We don't see him, but he is wandering around the earth, and he is looking for people like me and you that he can deceive, that he can tempt, that he can catch, that he can isolate, and that he can destroy. It is Satan's will for your life that your family be destroyed. It is Satan's will for your life that your faith in Jesus Christ be torn down. 
It is Satan's will for your life that you would live isolated because when you're in a church like this or any Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, there's safety in that. When we are banded together like this, there's safety. He wants you separate. That's why we believe what happened last year was something that the, that the devil used to separate the church. When the church is separated and isolated, the church is weak. Satan hunts just like a lion does. Lions will gather around the herd and they will find the weakest and the slowest and the smallest. And they're not going to go after everybody at once. They're just going to work to isolate that one weak one so that they can destroy him. That's the way Satan works. You may be in this place this morning and you're lonely you're isolated, you're struggling, and maybe you've got people around you, maybe you live with other people, maybe you've got family, you've got friends, you've got people you work with, but on the inside you're isolated, you're struggling, and you feel like you're fighting this battle alone. Know this morning that Jesus Christ loves you dearly. He created you for a purpose, and not only did he create you, but we believe that it's no accident that you're here this morning. We believe that it was God's will that you be in this place because God desires for you to not only be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, but to also be in relationship with other Christians in the context of a local church. You have safety here. You have security here. You have strength here. The Bible says there is strength in a multitude of counselors. Church, over this difficult weekend, our family has been so strengthened by the gathering together and the love that we've received from our church family. If you don't have a church family, know this morning that the number one way you're going to win this war is that you band up together with other Christians. You proclaim Christ as your Savior, number one, and you stay connected to a local church, number two. Satan is an enemy positioned against us. Number two, our second enemy is the system. Our second enemy in this spiritual war that we fight is the system. If you want to know more about that, I want to encourage you to get on the internet, go to our website, live.eastlandlife.com, or get on YouTube, search for Eastland Life Church, Metropolis, Illinois, and look at the most recent series we did called What to Make of It. There were three messages in that series, and all three of them sort of dealt with the system, and how Satan uses the system, and how we are to interact with the system, and how we are to combat the system in the way the Bible tells us to do that. It's not with weapons of earthly manufacture we do it spiritually we do it through prayer we do it through communion we do it through worship we do it in relationship with Jesus Christ the system is pitted against us used by Satan to throw us off the spiritual path that God has us on but number three is where I want to focus in the most this morning the enemy that I want to focus in on this morning is the self you've got Satan you've got the system and you've got the self these are your three enemies in spiritual warfare now, this seems a little weird that your enemy would be the self because what our culture tells us and sometimes what our heart tells us is that we've got it figured out. We're pretty much right on the money and everybody else around us is the problem. You ever felt that way? Like, man, if I can just get away from these morons and around some new morons, I'd be way better off. These people around me are the problem. If it weren't for what she does or what he does or what they do, I would have a good life. But these people are keeping me from this. And in some instances, we do come across difficult people. But in reality, if you go to the words of Jesus, Jesus was much more concerned about addressing the inner conflict than he was the outer conflict. Over and over in Jesus' ministry, 
The people would come up to him and they'd say, Jesus, what are we going to do about the Roman occupation? What are we going to do about these heavy taxes? What are we going to do about these social problems? What are we going to do about these political problems? And over and over and over, Jesus would point right back to the heart of the individual and say, what about you? And he would address them. You see, Jesus this morning, I believe, is not primarily concerned with fixing all of our problems out there. We believe that he's mighty enough to, and we have seen him do mighty things out there in other people. But Jesus' primary focus this morning is on you and is on me. It's on the heart. Because Jesus came not for a nation. He came not for a group of people, not for an ethnicity. Jesus came for you. He came for me. He came for people. Jesus wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to guide you and he wants to lead you. And the Bible tells us that when we give our lives to Jesus and we make the decision to follow Jesus, he actually gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to guide us, to lead us, to direct us. It would be just like if you're on the battlefield and you've got that helmet on, and you've got that earpiece, and the general can speak to you right through the earpiece. Every step you take, everywhere you go, every decision you make, every plan you make, you've got his voice in your ear saying, hey, here's what's to do next. Here's the plan. Here's the goal. Here's the next step to take. That's what it's like having the Holy Spirit in your life. I wish it was always that easy. Sometimes you have to listen real closely. Sometimes you have to seek out the voice of God. But when we seek him, the Bible says we always find him. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. But what we see in Galatians 5 is that even when we receive the Holy Spirit, as Christians, there's still a struggle. Look what it says in Galatians 5. It says, For the flesh, this old body that I was born with, born into sin, it says it desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. It says they're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. You're not to do whatever you want. How many of you, I wonder this morning, will participate with me and tell me, you know what, Pastor, I need a better prayer life. My prayer life could use a little work. I need a better prayer life. How many of you would say, you know what, I need better devotion time. I need to really be in the Word more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to be more of a person of the Word, right? Maybe for you parents in the room like me, I think to myself, man, I need to be more consistent praying with my kids. This is, this is terrible, but I'll tell you what it's like in my home. My two youngest daughters... They have their bedroom downstairs. My two oldest kids have their rooms upstairs. I pray with my younger ones all the time. Sometimes the older ones I don't always pray with. You know why? Because at nighttime I'm tired and I don't want to have to walk all the way up the stairs. And I know that's a problem. But night after night I'll go through seasons where I don't get that prayer time with them. And I'll think to myself, Blake, you big dummy. Just walk up the stairs, you lazy bum. If there was food up there, you'd walk up there. But you go to pray with your kids, you're not going to walk all the way up the stairs. And I know what the problem is. But man, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted and I'm tired. And I just sort of want to lay there and veg out. It's like I know what the problem is. But my flesh just battles it all the time. Some of us in the room have got some very deep-seated, addictive, compulsive behaviors. Sin patterns. Thought patterns. Emotional problems, anger issues, detachment issues, loneliness issues. And these, these are things that we've battled. Some of us have been battling the same thing. And if I were to ask you, you would tell me, yes, I've been battling these same feelings, these same thoughts, or these same behaviors for years and years and years. It has been the battle of my life. Not everybody on the outside knows it, but this has been my internal struggle. This is spiritual warfare. 
This is a war that you're fighting. And we want to give you some encouragement this morning. Jesus does not leave you alone in this battle. Jesus does not leave you alone in the fight against self. And the church does not leave you alone in the fight against self. There is victory available to us, and we believe the Bible tells us how we can achieve it. So I want to go to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to start in verse 6. You'll have it up here on the screen. This is 1 Timothy, starting in verse 6. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. The Apostle Paul is writing this scripture, and he's going to tell us, I believe, one of the secrets, sort of how to fight this battle. And we're going to talk this morning about the type of person who's going to win this battle versus the type of person who's going to lose the battle against self. And he starts out in verse 6 by saying, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So we got a formula. It says, Godliness plus contentment is great gain. And I looked at this and it struck me. It struck me because we live in a culture today that is engineered and designed to make you and me discontent. We live in a place and in a world and amongst a people that will teach us that we never look good enough, we never achieve enough, we never have enough, and what we do have is never good enough. We live in a world that is engineered to keep us in a state of discontent. Because as long as we are discontented, we will put all of our resources into chasing contentment. And we always are looking for that next thing that will bring us contentment. For some of us, contentment comes when we can just get another hit of that substance. For some of us, it's unhealthy relationships. For some of us, it's anger. If I could just tell them what I think, I would feel better. For some of us... For some of us, it could be what we look at, it could be what we consume, it could be what we watch. If I can just watch this for a while, I'll feel better. I'll have a false sense of connection that'll numb the pain for a little while. Church, I believe in America today, we have a generation of Christians who are attempting to gain ground in spiritual warfare by adding godliness to discontentment. We operate with a sense of constant nagging discontentment. I need newer, I need better, I need different, I need more. And we try to just add godliness on top of it. And Christianity can become this exercise by which we live a discontented life. Nothing is really ever good enough to satisfy us. Nobody is really ever enough to satisfy us. But we sort of think that if we can just add God into that formula, if we can just sort of add Jesus into that, maybe adding in some godliness, maybe if I'll read my Bible more, if I'll pray more, if I'll check off these boxes more, maybe if I can do all these spiritual things, it will help to solve or ease my discontentment. And church, I want to argue this morning that discontentment only happens when we can find true contentment in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply add Jesus in while we still long and reach out and hold on to these other things. We must be willing to let go of that and find Jesus where he is enough for us. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 37. The psalmist says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You know what King David was saying in this psalm? He is writing... And this is one of the richest, most powerful men who has ever lived on this earth. And he is writing to God. He is writing this psalm. And he said, you know what, Jesus? When I wake up, you are all I need. You are enough. 
If I lose everything else, Jesus, you are enough. Church, we live in a culture that Jesus is simply not enough for. What's scarier than that is that we have bred in America a church culture where Jesus isn't enough. You know, today, I see it more, I think, than any point in church history, and I'm sure that electronic media and the internet has made this a much bigger problem than it used to be. There are many people who are Christians that live an isolated Christian life where most of their spiritual growth, so to speak, happens through the internet. Because most churches that they visit, they don't look the right way, they don't sound the right way, they don't have the correct lighting, they don't have the correct people, they don't have the most talented musicians, they don't look, feel, sound, and act a certain way, and it's just simply not enough for them, because my generation in particular is addicted to the adrenaline rush, if you will. We are addicted to that dopamine release that happens when we get into an environment that sort of stokes our emotions. If you wonder why we leave all the lights on during worship, it's not just so we won't trip over each other. That's true. But we think it's important that we don't simply bring you in here to hype you up. We don't blast the music in your face. We don't work your, try to work ourselves up into an emotional frenzy. Not that there's anything wrong with being emotional in worship, but church, if we are going to be emotional, we need to be emotional because we are impacted emotionally by God and by His Word, and by His goodness, and by His grace, having an emotional experience may not necessarily be spiritual. Go to any large concert, and you will see young people with their eyes closed and their hands up. It doesn't mean they're worshiping God. They're worshiping, but it may not be the one true living God. We cannot simply win this war by adding godliness on top of discontentment. If you're struggling with consistent discontentment. I want to invite you this morning, I want to invite you this morning to meet the Jesus that I know because he's enough. He's enough. Let's go to verse 8. Back into 1 Timothy. Verse 8 says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice it does not say that money is the root of all evil. If God has blessed you financially, man, we're glad you're here. There's a reason we passed those baskets. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If God has blessed you financially, praise God. Good for you. Amen. Nothing wrong with that. If God has blessed you in that way, God wants you to use that blessing in a way that blesses him and blesses others. Having money is not a bad thing. Loving money is a very dangerous thing. Looking for contentment in money and material things is a trap that the Bible says many people have fallen into and never gotten out of. I want to talk to you this morning about the types of people that win the spiritual war. We're going to go to these verses and we're going to point out just a few types of people. And as we do these, I want you to identify whether or not this is you. And if it's not, then you sort of may know how to respond this morning. I want to talk this morning from verse 10 about men who wonder. I want to talk about men who wonder. The Bible talks about men who fall into this trap of needing the next big thing. 
to sort of fill that hole of discontentment in their life. If I can just get married, I'll feel better. If I can just have a kid, I'll feel better. If I can just get a raise, I'll feel better. If I could just get a better house or a better car, I'd feel better. These are men, the Bible says, who wonder. And this doesn't just have to be men. But Paul is addressing a young man in Timothy, and I do believe the Bible teaches that men are to take a leadership role in their families and within the context of the local church. So we're going to talk about it from that perspective this morning. Wondering, anytime it's mentioned in the Bible, wondering, anytime it's mentioned in the Bible, is always a curse on the person wondering. I want you to think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, the biggest punishment they experienced was a disconnection from a personal intimate relationship with God. They were kicked out of the garden. And you know where God put them? He just put them out there to wonder. Wherever they could go, they wondered. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt in the book of Exodus, and they began to make their way towards the promised land, but they got all trapped up in idolatry and in sin, what was God's curse on them for their sin and for their failure? They wandered the desert for 40 years. They wondered. When Satan was kicked from heaven... For his attempted insurrection against God, God sent him down to earth, and he sent him down here to wonder. That's why he wanders around like a roaring lion. He's got no home. He's just wandering around. Wandering is a curse. Wandering is a sign that spiritually you've got no firm footing. You've got no grounding. You've got no foundation. You've got no structure to keep you safe spiritually. Wandering is a state that I believe many men in our culture today live in. A hundred years ago, the average man got married at about age 20, 21. Today, it's now age 28. Years and years ago, the average person would have entered their normal career, their lifelong career, if you will, in their early 20s. Now, if you're anything like a lot of us, I'm 34, wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up. We tend to just wander through life. We sort of wander around. Maybe we hop from church to church if we go to church at all. We sort of hop from job to job hoping to find one that works for us. In America today, more than ever, we are just jumping from family to family. Our kids are sort of wandering around, aimless, looking for connection. Church, the wandering lifestyle where you're not firmly planted and firmly rooted in the Scripture and in a local church is a dangerous lifestyle that you're not equipped to win. There's a reason when the military deploys its units, it does not send them out there to simply wonder. They have a place to go and a job to do. Church, we need to be coming under authority and accepting responsibility in our lives. For the young men who are listening to me this morning, I want to encourage you. Do not put off the decisions of getting married, getting a job, coming under authority, being active and involved in church, and accepting responsibility. Satan will tell you, the world will tell you, and your flesh will tell you that to have a lot of responsibilities on your life is going to cripple you, and it's going to slow you down, and it's going to break you down, and it's going to exhaust you, and it's going to mess you up, and you'll never get to be your true self and your best self if you are always stuck under the weight of responsibilities. And church, I'll tell you that the Bible teaches, and my personal life experience has taught me that the heavy responsibilities of life, being a husband, being a father, being a pastor, these have brought the best out in me. These heavy responsibilities are what gets me up in the morning and gets me moving. I don't have the freedom to sleep till noon, even though, man, I would love to and absolutely could. But I don't. 
Not because I'm a great person. Not because I'm a super Christian who doesn't need Jesus or anybody else. It's because God has put people and places and things in my life that I have to be responsible for. Things that I have to go to. Things that I have to do. If you're in here this morning and you're not actively involved in service at the church, I want to invite you, get involved in personal ministry. You want to see God reveal himself to you? You want to grow spiritually? You want to begin winning spiritual battles? Get involved in the church and find a place where help is needed and begin to serve there. That responsibility will free you up. Listen, those of us who have accepted that and have been active in the church, what we have found is that we will get real, real antsy if we're not serving. We stand around for too long. We start wondering what to do. We wanted to give the Anderson family the weekend off this weekend because of what's happened in the previous week and, you know, just having to go through that this last week. We didn't want to have them worrying about planning the church service this weekend. And it didn't take very long. This morning, Ryan came up. He's like, man, you want me to do giving for you? I was like, yeah, you can do that. It's like, because we get antsy if we stand around too long without nothing to do because when we are serving God and serving others, we grow in that. Amen? We don't need to be men and women who wonder. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 11 says, But you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I want to talk to you this morning about men who run. This one's very personal to me. In my younger years, I struggled with an addictive behavior for a long time. And it's a battle that, praise God, I've seen victory over. And it's a battle that many young men have faced. But it's a battle that I've had victory over. But it's something that we deal with every single day. And all of us, I would dare say, have things in our life that we are consistently running to that are harmful to us. How many times have you ever been scrolling through social media and thought to yourself, this is poisonous? I don't know anybody who scrolls with their index finger like that. You have to be a psychopath to scroll like that, okay? Maybe you do it with your thumb, but you say, listen, I know this is terrible for me. And you sit there and you consume and you consume and you read stuff and you just get madder and you get madder and you think, why am I so mad? I I can't stand these people. I hate reading all this stuff. Church, we can run from that. We have freedom to do that. Church, in America today, we need men and women who will run from the things that are killing them. We need men and women who will run. Think about Joseph and Potiphar's house back in the book of Exodus. Joseph was a godly young man, and he was being seduced by the king's wife, unbeknownst to the king. And he knew that this was sinful, and I'm sure as a young man he was tempted. But church, you know what he didn't do? He didn't stand there in that moment and pray about it. He didn't make some sort of commitment and say, you know what? I'm going to do my best to not fall into this trap and... I'm going to do my best to withstand this temptation. And he didn't reason it out. He didn't think about it. He didn't try to talk his way out of it or talk his way through it. The Bible says that he ran. He fled the scene. Church, some of us today have some behaviors and some things in our life that we consume, some things that we go to, some relationships that we go to that are toxic, they're dangerous, they're leading us into sin, they're tripping us up, they're keeping us in this same old crazy cycle. We need to be willing to run from that. Amen? We need to be people who run. It says in verse 7 of 2 Timothy, 
Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing church. We run not only from bad things, but we get the opportunity to run towards a reward that Jesus Christ has for us. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are running towards a righteous reward by which we will enter into a deeper relationship with God, not only in eternity, like what Meemaw got to experience on Tuesday afternoon when she received her reward for the race that she completed, but it's a reward that we get, I believe, in many ways while we are still on earth. Church, the Bible says that we will experience no temptation that God does not provide a way out of. Never. Never will you be tempted in a way that you cannot win, but we have to be willing to run from it and to run to Jesus. If you've never run to Jesus, I want to invite you and encourage you to do that this morning. Verse 12, Paul says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the last one. I want to talk about men who fight. I want to talk about men and women this morning who will fight. It became very clear to us in 2020 that if the church will survive, the church has got to fight. If the church will survive, the church has got to fight. And for many of us, that's not in our nature. Any of you crazy people just love conflict? Like, man, you just seek it out. Like, man, if I can just get up in somebody's face, I, I, get, I get excited about it. Most of us aren't that way. Now, there's a few of us who are out looking for a fight, but most of us, most of us, I think, probably just sort of want to be free to live our lives and let other people live their lives, and we're good with that, and we're good with that. But the truth is that Satan has empowered the system to infiltrate the church, and the system is now attempting to keep the church from living the way God has told the church to live and operating the way God has told the church to operate. In church, Christians are peaceful people. You look at the example Jesus set in the New Testament and you'll see that Jesus was usually very peaceful, usually. When he was met with threats, he accepted them and he didn't retaliate. When he was met with temptation, he simply spoke the word of God and fled the temptation. But there was one moment that some of you may remember that Jesus was not so peaceful. It was when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he approached his father's temple. He looked at God's temple. And what he found is that the people there who were supposed to be men of God, holding the temple sacred as a place of prayer and worship, had instead turned it into a place where they were exchanging money and extorting people. They had turned it into a place that extolled the world's values and not God's values. And when Jesus saw this, the Bible says that in his anger, he fashioned a whip and he drove them out of the temple. He cleansed the temple. Now, my advice to you this morning is not that when you disagree with somebody that you fashion a whip. That's not my advice. But what I believe the Bible wants us to know this morning is that we need men and women who have had enough of sin destroying our lives, destroying our families, tearing down our churches. 
We've had enough of the system trying to close down churches, disband churches, keep churches from meeting. We've had enough of the system that tells us how to worship, when to worship, and who to worship. We've had enough of the system telling us what we can say to people, what we can't say to people, what pronouns we can use, what pronouns we can't use. Church, at some point, we've got to decide that the line needs to be drawn and the temple needs to be cleansed. We need Christians who will fight, not throw fists, but who will fight? You say, well, how do we fight? What does that look like? Look at the scripture with me. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. All right? So what I'm talking about this morning is not necessarily hoarding your guns and your ammo and your buckets of non-perishable food. If you want to do it, do it. But that's not how we win the spiritual war. It says the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Church, I declare to you this morning, Jesus can tear down that stronghold in your life. That addiction, that compulsion, that anger, those feelings, that fear, Jesus can win that war in your life. And he has given you power to demolish that stronghold. The question is not, will I ever get better? Will Jesus ever heal me? Can I ever have victory over this battle? The question is, are you willing to be equipped and to take the weapons that God gives you to fight back? Too many Christians just don't fight back. They accept it, they receive it, and they sit down defeated, and we drag ourselves into church week after week, wondering why some Christians seem to have all the victory, while we seem to just live in the same old, same old week after week. Church, it does not have to be that way. We have been given weapons to demolish strongholds in our life. You can be different three months from today if you make the choice today to be equipped and to use the weapons God gives you to fight back. Not only do we demolish strongholds, but it says we demolish arguments in verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Church, not only are we given authority and power and the equipping by God to win the victory in the battle against our own selves, but we are given the authority and the wisdom to attack the ignorant arguments that exist in this world as we fight back as Christians. Church, the world today is using a lot of convincing-sounding, intelligent-sounding, educated-sounding arguments to tell us why we're foolish to believe in God. We're foolish to believe in an earth that was created by God. We're foolish to believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the words of God. We're foolish to believe that the local church is the house of God. We're foolish to believe that giving our income to the church is somehow giving to God. We are foolish to believe that giving our time and our energy to serving our communities through the power of the gospel is a waste of time. We are being convinced with compelling sounding, educated sounding arguments from educated looking and sounding people that are questioning and trying to tear down our worldview. And church, I will tell you today that the church in America has done a poor job of equipping Christians to fight back. 
I grew up in church from the time I was old enough to breathe until the time I graduated high school. I was in a good Bible-believing church every weekend and every Wednesday night. If the doors were open, somebody in my family had me at church. And when I started college at Murray State University, week one, day one, as a freshman, I walk in and my biology 101 teacher tells me, we're going to break down your faith in God because you're ignorant if you believe that stuff. Day one, 2004. And over about three weeks, he presented so many compelling arguments against the Christian faith that I called my mother and said, Mom, I don't know if I can believe this Bible stuff anymore. It just doesn't make any sense to me anymore. And church, thank God I had some men who were equipped to fight this war, who taught me, and they poured into me, and they prayed for me, and they gave me weapons to fight back. They gave me the tools in the Word of God to strengthen my faith. Church, listen, we have got truth on our side because truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to God but by me. Jesus Christ is truth, and we have him on our side. And we have the truth of history on our side, church. Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. It's a historical fact. It happened. Any historian will tell you that there's no evidence for it is lying to you because there is ample evidence for it. Any court of law in America today that took that case, the Christian would win because there is ample evidence. 50 to 100 to 500 witnesses, the Bible says, saw Jesus after he died, risen again three days later, walking, talking, speaking, and even eating. Jesus is alive today, and we have the tools, church, to not only win the battle in, against ourselves, but we have the tools this morning to demolish the ignorant arguments that would come against the church in the world today. We have the tools, and we will use the tools. The question is, will you put them to use in your life? 